The scripture for today is Matthew 28, 1 through 15. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to, the, to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let me pray for the message today. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this Resurrection Sunday. I thank you for the time that we get here to celebrate the new creation in you. And I pray that you would move in power among us as your word is proclaimed. Father, I can speak the words that I have prepared, but only the Holy Spirit can move in great power upon our lives, and I pray that you would do just that. I pray that you would reveal the glory of Jesus to us, and I pray that you would build up those who are saved, and I pray that you would save those who are lost. And for what you will do here today, Father, we give you our thanks and praise in the great and gracious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus was put to death on a Friday afternoon, uh, sometime before sundown, and it was the sixth day of the week. One of the last things that he said from the cross that day, which is recorded in John chapter 19, is, it is finished. And what Jesus was saying is that he had come and accomplished the work that the Father had sent him to do. He was saying that he had made the once for all sacrifice for sins. It was done. He was saying that he had opened up the way to God so that whoever believes in him could now have life in him and an eternal relationship with the Father forever and ever. Jesus was saying that he had completed the work of recreation even as he had completed the work of creation on the sixth day so long before that. With this, Jesus committed his spirit into the Father's hands and he breathed his last breath on earth. He was laid in a tomb. 
And by the kindness of a, a, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was also one of his disciples, he was laid there in good fashion. He was honored in his death. And as Jesus had done at the end of his act of creation, so Jesus did at the end of his act of recreation. Namely, he rested, and it was the seventh day. That day, that Saturday, Jesus' body lay in the tomb, awaiting the perfect timing of his Father, but his spirit rejoiced in the completeness and the goodness and the irreversibility of what he had just accomplished on the cross. And then, at the dawn of the next day, the power of the Father came upon the body of Jesus so that he was brought back from death and so that he escaped from the tomb that had held him for some 36 hours. And it was now the first day. It was the beginning of a new creation. It was the beginning of the recreation. It was the beginning of an era that will never end. It was the beginning of the vindication of the life and the teaching and the deeds of Jesus Christ. If we had been in Jerusalem that day and looked around, taken in all the sights, it would physically have looked just like it looked the day before. Physically, The city looked just the same. The earth looked just the same. But the truth of the matter is that everything was new and everything was going to be new forever. Even as the sun, S-U-N, had emerged over the horizon and chased back the darkness and shed its light throughout the earth, so the sun, S-O-N, had risen from the dead and chased back evil and caused the light of life to shine upon humanity so that anybody who believed in him that day and who believes in him this day will have eternal life and have eternal light in him with God the Father. To be sure, there were many details left to be worked out, even as there are many details left to be worked out this very day. The saga of creation and sin and devastation and recreation and final unification of all things in Jesus is still unfolding. And yet on that day, the decisive blow had been dealt and the effects of what Jesus did on the cross and in that tomb and in his resurrection could not be slowed down and could not be reversed. The morning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the dawn of a new creation. And what Jesus said on that Good Friday, he still says on this particular Sunday. It is finished. Would you say that with me? It is finished. It is done. He has completed his work of recreation. When the Sabbath had ended and the new day was about to dawn, two of the women who remained faithful to Jesus, both of whom happened to be named Mary, went to the tomb They had been there that Friday evening. They had watched Jesus be placed in that tomb. They had witnessed the stone being rolled over the tomb. They may have even witnessed the Roman government sealing the tomb so that anybody who tried to access it would would pay for that with their lives. And now the Sabbath had ended, the first day of the week was about to dawn and those women were in mourning. And their desire was to go to the site where these things had taken place. Their desire was to mourn the loss of Jesus. Their desire was to continue to honor Jesus even in his death. However, when they arrived at that tomb, they saw things that shocked them, that stunned them to the core of their souls, and that transformed their lives forever, even to this very day. At some point in that morning, Matthew tells us there had been a great earthquake earthquake. 
Unlike the earthquake that took place on Good Friday, this was not, this didn't come about by natural causes though. This earthquake came because an angel of the Lord was literally sent from heaven and by the grace of the Father and the power of his hand, he rolled back the stone that kept Jesus in the tomb. That's what, that's what caused that earthquake that morning. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us precisely what the angel looked like. Haven't you ever wondered what it would be like to actually encounter an angel of the Lord? He doesn't tell us precisely what he looked like, but he does tell us a few things. He says that his appearance was like lightning, like blazing, powerful light, a symbol of holiness. It says that his clothing was as white as snow. He was pure, he was holy, he was righteous, he was set apart for the things of God. And probably most amazing to me, he says that the angel was sitting on top of the stone that he had rolled away from the tomb of Jesus. Just sitting there atop the stone. I I just think that's amazing. Rejoicing in the things that God had done. To help us understand that this was not just some sort of spiritual symbol or symbolism, but that this was an actual, material, physical occurrence, Matthew tells us that the Roman soldiers who were there to protect the body of Jesus and to arrest anybody who attempted to access the tomb of Jesus, they saw all these things with their eyes, and for fear of him, it says in verse 4, They trembled and became like dead men. These rugged, rough, tumble men who had been trained to fight, trained to guard, trained to kill, melted like wax in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And they trembled in a kind of awe, perhaps not worship, but certainly an awe before the presence of the angel. And maybe they even saw Jesus escape from the tomb, who knows? It could also be that while their heads were bowed, Jesus escaped without them seeing him. But one way or the other, they physically, visibly saw these things and they fell to the ground in worship, or at least in fear. Evidently, the women, when they arrived, were also afraid. Whatever they witnessed exactly, we're not sure. But what they did witness struck fear in their hearts because the angel of the Lord looked at them and he audibly spoke to them and said, do not be afraid. You'll see every time that I'm aware of in the Bible when a person encounters an angel of the Lord, they almost always fall to the ground in fear. Sometimes it says they even fall down as dead people. And and so often, either the Lord himself or the angel of the Lord will say, don't be afraid. And so we can be sure that these women felt a reverential fear deep in their hearts and the angel tried to comfort them. Do not be afraid, verse five. For I know that you are seeking Jesus who was crucified. Got good news for you. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. In other words, in fulfillment of the words he spoke, in fulfillment of the multiple prophecies he made about his own power over death, Jesus is not in the place where they buried him. Come, ladies. I'm not just gonna tell you this. I wanna show you this. Come and see the place where he lay. See it with your own eyes. And when you have seen the lack of the presence of the risen Christ, then go quickly, run. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. See, I have shared these things with you before they take place so that when they do take place, you will believe. You will know that Jesus is the Lord.
with that, the women actually went inside the tomb of Christ. Can you imagine having that privilege? There's only a handful of people in the history of the earth that got to actually go into the tomb of Jesus. If you go to Jerusalem today, I've never been there, but I promise you they're somewhere where they're advertising and selling tickets to see the tomb of Jesus. But we don't know if that's really the tomb of Jesus or not. Surely it was there somewhere. But these people for sure went to the actual tomb where Jesus was. They walked in there and they saw the lack of their Lord's body. And when these women had seen that with their own eyes, they quickly departed from the inside of that tomb with two things in their hearts. Matthew said they were filled with fear and with great joy. They were filled with fear because, I think, of the display of power they had just seen. They were filled with fear because of the exceeding glory of the angel that was there before them. And probably most of all, they were filled with fear because of the great mystery of Jesus who they knew had been buried in that tomb. They saw his dead body. They were at the ceremony, and now he was not there. And I don't know about you, but not a lot of my friends have come back from the dead. And if I had heard that, it would strike fear into my heart. There was a fear in their hearts, and yet, beloved... The Bible says there was also this strange mixture. There was also a great joy. Not just a joy, but a great joy. In Greek, it literally is mega joy. Massive joy. An unusual kind of joy. Because this one they had loved so much died in fact. But he did not stay dead. They heard the news that Jesus, who had raised Lazarus from the dead, had somehow now raised himself from the dead, and this gave them a joy that is quite literally indescribable. They had no idea what was about to transpire, either in the coming days or in the coming centuries. They had no idea about all the great things God had planned to do. But in that moment, they were simultaneously filled with a reverential fear and with a great and gripping joy. As they were on their way to tell the rest of the disciples about the good news of Jesus that they had just seen and that they had just heard, Jesus himself met them on the way and he said to them, greetings. Now in English that just means greetings, but in Greek what he actually says, it's kairote is the Greek word, it means have joy. It's an imperative, it's a command. It's the same word for joy, but it's in a command form. Have joy, be filled with joy. This was a a common greeting in that day, and yet I don't think Jesus was using it in a common way. I think he meant what he said. You have in your hearts reverential fear and great joy, and now I am telling you, have greater joy. Be filled with joy, my precious daughters. And although they certainly felt a rush of happiness in that moment when Jesus spoke that word to them, oh, beloved, they had no idea, no idea of the height and depth and width and breadth of the joy that Jesus has stored up for them and for all who put their faith in him. Indeed, kairote, have joy. Rejoice in Jesus if you believe in Jesus. When Mary and Mary saw Jesus and heard his voice, they fell to the ground, just like Eric had just said. They fell to the ground. They took hold of his feet, and Matthew tells us they worshiped him. They worshiped him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, with all of their might. All of that grief they had on Friday now turned into a worshipful joy 
on the early morn of Sunday. Yet evidently, there was still a, a mixture of fear inside their hearts, and Jesus could see that. Because he said again in verse 10, look what he said. Now he tells them, not just the angel of the Lord, but the Lord says, do not be afraid. But here's what I want you to do. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will literally, physically, visibly see me. Not only did Jesus want to still their fears, but beloved, he wanted to send these beloved women on a mission. Mary and Mary were the first two missionaries, if you will. They were the first two people on the earth who got the pleasure of going to others and telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And as a display of his amazing love for those he came to save, notice that he called his other disciples his brothers. Like Eric said, when you really meditate on what it means that Jesus has all authority, even in heaven, even in heaven, all authority, and on earth he has all authority, when you literally let that sink into you, and then you hear him call his beloved ones, his brothers, that ought to just take your breath away. He does not call them servants. He does not call them subjects. He didn't even call them disciples. But like we saw last week in John chapter 15, there he said, I call you not my servants, but I call you my friends. And we saw there that that Greek word literally should be translated loved ones. I call you my loved ones. I love you. And now here Jesus uses a, a similar word and he says, I call you my brothers. Go tell my brothers. He is the Lord over these people. He created them, literally knit them together inside their mother's wombs. He recreated them by the power of his hand and the grace of his heart. He could call them anything he wants to call them. But he is so amazingly tender, so amazingly affectionate that he calls them by familial words, my loved ones, my brothers, my friends. What an amazing God we have, beloved. Great and gracious, powerful and patient, merciful and mighty. Just an amazing, amazing God. Now, when Jesus instructed those women to tell the other disciples to go to Galilee, if you know anything about the Bible, you'll know Galilee was kind of a big place. It was like a large county, uh, if just sort of get your mind over the, the size of place it would have been. So to say, hey, go meet me up in Sherburne County would be a little bit ambiguous, wouldn't it? But Jesus had normal places where he met with his disciples in Jerusalem, and he surely had normal places where he met with them in Galilee. So when he said, tell them to go meet me in Galilee, they would have known exactly where to go. And when the disciples heard these instructions from these women, they also would have felt, I think, that same exact mixture of fear and joy that the women felt. They would have had fear because they would have known that this one they trusted in and who had, they had believed in now was fulfilling his words by coming back to life. They would have had fear because all but one of them forsook Jesus. And now they're going to have to look him in the face. They're going to have to deal with the fact that they did not remain faithful to him in his darkest hour. There was a fear in their hearts, and yet there was a deep and gripping joy. A deep joy. Normally at Glory of Christ, we're going through the Gospel of John right now. We're in the upper room discourse, and remember, Jesus had been saying all the, those things to these men just days before this particular scene transpired. And as I meditated on this moment, I think the disciples probably started to understand some of the things Jesus taught them in the upper room, and a joy began to land on them. 
they began to realize that he did leave them for a moment, but he was not going to leave them forever. He would, in fact, be with them forever. He would fulfill his promises. He would keep his word all the way to the end. Beloved, the disciples that day felt this amazing mixture of reverential fear and great joy in Jesus Christ. There is no joy like the joy of encountering the one who created everything and who, cre- who recreated everything. There's no joy like the joy of encountering the one who endeavors to personally connect with us, not just in some general way, but personally, face-to-face, name by name, to connect with us and give us abundant life and eternal life in him with God the Father. There is just no joy like that joy. And that was the joy, both the right kind of fear and the deep gripping joy, that was the kind of joy they had that day and that's the kind of joy available to anyone here today who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now sadly, not everyone who heard the good news of Jesus that day, not everyone who heard about his resurrection responded with the kind of fear and the kind of joy that the disciples had. While the disciples were on their way to Galilee to meet with Jesus, some of the guards who had actually witnessed the, at least the details of the resurrection, they went into Jerusalem and they found the, the leaders of the Jews and they told them everything that they had seen. They told them surely about the angel that had come and everything that had transpired and everything they could remember. If they happened to see Jesus escaping from the tomb, surely they told them about that as well. If they were able to overhear and understand the conversation that happened between the angel and the women, surely they reported that as well. All that they had seen, they reported to the leaders of Israel. But when the leading priests of Israel assembled with the other elders of the nation and taking counsel, when the shepherds of a nation who were charged with leading the people of God to love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, when they discussed these things, rather than being in awe of Jesus and falling to their face, rather than trembling and having great joy, rather than seeking the will of God and seeking to discern if the purposes of God had in fact been fulfilled in their midst, they decided to pay off the soldiers. They decided to put a lie in their mouths And they decided to advocate for them so that the soldiers would not pay for their lives for that lie. In other words, the very shepherds of Israel, rather than bowing down in worship, decided to walk in deception. First of all, or specifically, if you look at verse 13, here's what they told the soldiers to say. They said to the soldiers, listen, here's what we want you to tell people. Say, his disciples came by night and they stole him away while we were asleep. So here's what they're saying. We want you soldiers to admit that you abdicated your duty. We want you to admit that you were given one of the most important jobs in our day and you blew it. Rather than staying awake and fulfilling your duty, you fell asleep. And while you fell asleep, something happened to the body, you don't know what. Beloved, those guys would have been killed for that admission. And that's what they were saying. We want you to lie at the risk of your lives. And then they said this in verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll pay him off. We'll advocate for you. We'll stand for you. We'll do everything we can to keep you alive. But you must tell this lie. You must do that. And obviously, the powers that be in Israel had enough power to compel the soldiers to do that because they accepted the offer from what we can tell. And I'm 
I have to be honest with you, I have mixed feelings about this. Because on the one hand, I really feel for these guys. I feel, I have sympathy for their situation. These are just blue collar, rough and tumble guys. These are very rough and tough men. These are guys who are trained to fight, guys who are trained to kill, guys who are trained to protect, guys who are trained to obey, guys who are trained to, to die if they had to die. They were just simple men. And now they're dealing with people who have tremendous political power. They're dealing with people that are way above their pay grade. And if I put myself in their shoes, I have to be honest with you, I feel for them. I'm not 100% sure in my flesh what I would have done in that moment. But on the other hand, I find it hard to understand how people could see and hear the things that they heard and saw and not believe. I find it hard to understand how people who were ready to fight to the death would not stand up for Jesus to the death after what they had seen. This was not just something they heard about, something they witnessed with their eyes. It's hard to understand why they would not take a stand for Jesus, but at the end of the day, who knows what happens, happened to these guys before they breathed their last. You know, we learn in the book of Acts that many people in Jerusalem actually came to faith in Christ. Even those who had conspired against Jesus and taken his life, some of those very people came to life in him. So it's possible that these soldiers came to life in Christ eventually, I don't know. But one way or the other, they did what they did. They took the bribe and they told the lie. And that lie had a great power among the Jews and probably even to this day has a, a kind of power among people. As for the chief priests and elders, as for the very shepherds of Israel, I find it much more difficult to understand where they were coming from. I find it much more difficult to comprehend what it would be like to be a shepherd of the nation of God, to be charged with leading the people of God into the presence of God, and to be so hard-hearted toward God that not only did you conspire his death, but then you wanted to undermine the truth of what happened to him after death. Do you realize these guys did not just hear a story, they received compelling evidence that this resurrection actually happened, and they could have gone to corroborate that evidence right away. They could have interviewed people. They could have gone to the site. They could have sought out his disciples. And Jesus himself taught on the earth for 40 days after the resurrection, physically, visibly taught on the earth. They could have sought him out. They could have sought to see whether God had in fact been in all of this. They could have sought to see if the Father had in fact fulfilled his purposes in their midst, in their very time, in their presence, in their sight, in their hearing. But instead of that, they hardened their hearts against the God that they said they worshipped. It's very difficult to take that in, beloved, especially as a guy. I live my life as a pastor. It's hard to, to take this in, but I think here is a place where Jesus helps us to understand the depths of corruption in the human heart. Let me read for you a passage from John chapter three. Here's what Jesus says about these things. He says, and this is the judgment of God that comes into the world. The light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. The light has come into the world. The people have loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not want to come into the light lest his works should be exposed. The resistance to light is because people have embraced darkness and they love darkness, even if they give lip service to the light. And when the light shines, they want nothing to do with it because they don't want to be exposed. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The hardness of the Jewish leaders' hearts toward Jesus was a result of their own sin. It was a result of their own love of sin. It was a result of their love of power and position and prestige and possessions and everything that goes along with those things. The hardness of their heart was due to their repeated rejection of the God they had claimed to worship. Their sin rendered them blind and deaf and numb in heart so that when they saw, they didn't see. When they heard, they did not hear. And when they considered these things, they did not feel that blessed mixture of reverential fear and great joy that belongs to everyone who believes in Jesus by grace through faith. And as it was in that day, so it is in our day. In fact, as we go together with our families, maybe this afternoon or evening, it's going to be this way for some of us this very day. There are still many who hear the good news of Jesus and are even presented with compelling evidence that that good news is true, and yet they still will not believe. They will not soften their hearts. They will not bow their knees and worship the one who has been so gracious to us all. They're dead in their sin. They're lost in their own darkness. And while this is hard to understand for us, especially when we know the power of Jesus, I personally have experienced the miraculous, life-transforming power of Jesus. I mean, I was saved in a miraculous way. I'm not exaggerating. God absolutely saved me out of a gutter of drug addiction and danger and, and made me into who I am today. I've seen his power, and yet I have two living brothers that I have shared the gospel with for so many years, and they will not believe. Both of these guys, my brothers, have seen what happened to me. They saw who I was. Others have heard about it. They saw it. They saw what God has done in my life, and yet they will not believe. And in some ways, this is, this is very hard to understand, and in some ways, this is very painful for me, as it probably is for you as you deal with unbelieving family members in your life as well. And yet, I think this is a place where we need to hear and receive the wisdom of Jesus in John chapter 3. That the reason some people will not believe is because they love the darkness. That's just the truth of it. You can say whatever they want to say. Throw up whatever smoke screens they want to throw up. But the truth is, they love the darkness. They love their sin. They do not want it to be exposed. They do not want to die to themselves. And so for our part, we need to trust God with these things. We need to put them in the presence of God and leave them in the hands of God. We need to call upon his name and trust that in his wisdom and in his will and in his way, he will act as he wants to act when he's ready to act. George Mueller was a pastor and leader in the 19th century, and he was a, a real prayer warrior. One of the most important, uh, I call him one of my primary deceased mentors. I read his stuff regularly, and he has mentored me more than he will probably ever know. He wrote this in his journal about praying for unbelieving people. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of the engagements upon me might be. Every single day, no matter what the circumstances, Mueller prayed for these five souls by name. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the other four. Five years elapsed. Now we've got six and a half years down the road praying every day. 
And then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. Now 12 and a half years has gone by. This guy praying every day for five souls. I thank God for the three and prayed on for the other two. These two remained unconverted, period. It's the last thing Mueller ever wrote about those two. What we happen to know though is that Pastor Mueller, who had received so many amazing answers to so many amazing prayers for so many decades of time, he kept on praying for these two brothers. He prayed for them and prayed for them. Records tell us that he prayed for them by name for 52 years. I'm 51 years old. He prayed for these two longer than I have been alive for 52 years. He would not give up praying for their souls to be saved. And when George Mueller breathed his last, they were still not saved. And yet, when they heard about George Mueller's death, and they considered his life, and they reconsidered his Lord, both of those men bowed the knee to Jesus and came to life in Jesus. 52 years of prayer, finally heard before the Father. In his good time, he softened the hearts of those who were very, very hard before him. So, beloved I just think we need to be aware on this Easter Sunday that there are some people that we love so dearly that will hear the good news of Jesus and not believe. And yet, like George Mueller, let us not give up. Let us not give up. We have to be wise about how we interact with such people, but one thing they can't keep us from doing is praying. We can pray and pray and pray. And I want to challenge you to take a list of three or five people close to you in your life, put them in your prayer journal, and pray for them day by day by day, in sickness or in health, no matter what the circumstances. Just simply pray, Father, show them your glory. Father, bring them to yourself, and then trust the Lord. Pray in faith. Have peace that the Father will hear your prayers. He will act in the way he wants to act. He will act in the time he wants to act. You may see them be saved. You may not see them be saved. They may never be saved. But one thing I know is that our Father will hear your prayers and our Father will care that you have his missionary heart to pray for such as these. Some will not believe, but we can pray. And I pray that we will pray. Ultimately, the question of who will fall at Jesus' feet and who will harden their hearts is in the hands of Jesus. And we who believe should not allow the unbelief of others to suppress that amazing mixture of reverential fear and great joy that we have. I grieve for my two brothers. Rick and Bob are their names. If you think about them, you could pray for them. I grieve for them, but their unbelief will not keep me from rejoicing in Christ because the power of the life of Christ is greater than all the unbelief in the world, beloved. So let us rejoice in the risen Christ. Even as we grieve those who will not believe, let us rejoice in the risen Christ. As we draw this message to a close, I want to encourage you to rejoice in him in five specific ways. This will be pretty quick. First of all, let us rehearse the gospel regularly and rejoice in him who created and recreated all things. Let us not become bored with the story of Jesus. Let us regularly meditate on his life and on his suffering, on his death, on his burial, and on his resurrection. Let us rejoice in his, his act of creation and his act of recreation. Let us rejoice in the fact that 
that we believe because he sought us out and caused us to believe. Let us rejoice in the fact that we have life because he gave us eternal life in him. Let us rehearse the good news that has given us eternal life and rejoice. From deep inside of our hearts, beloved, let us rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing, let us rejoice that Jesus, having recreated us, has not left us alone, but has made us members of his body, the church. Let us rejoice that Jesus has not left us on the earth by ourselves, but he has given us others with whom to rejoice. He has given us others with whom to walk. Oh, how I would love to walk in Christ with my, mater- my, my, my physical familial brothers, but oh, how I am so grateful that I have an army of brothers and sisters available to me through Christ who are more profoundly related to me than my blood relatives. Jesus has been gracious to us, beloved. He has not left us alone. He has made us a royal priesthood. He has made us a holy nation. He has made us a people for himself. He has not left us alone on the earth. So let us rejoice, beloved. Let us rejoice in the good gift, the good grace of the risen Christ. Third, let us rejoice that Jesus has made a way for us to access God the Father and has given us permission to call him our Father and to ask him for whatever we wish in Jesus' name, knowing that the Father will hear our prayers. Let us rejoice in the fact that we have been reconciled to God and we actually have a relationship directly with God the Father. Of course, we come through Jesus Christ, but we're gonna see soon in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, you will talk directly with the Father. You will be in intimate relationship directly with the Father. And in this, we should rejoice, beloved. The one who created all things looks to us as his family, as his children. I just don't see what greater gift in life any of us could possibly want. No fame, no fortune, no position, no prestige, no possessions, nothing, nothing, nothing measures up to the joy of knowing our Father in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fourth, let us rejoice that Jesus has called us and empowered us to be ambassadors of his kingdom in the world and heralds of the good news of Jesus to the world. It amazes me that God not only gave me life in him, but made me a conduit of life. One person in my family did come to know Jesus, but throughout the years, a number of people have come to know Jesus because of the witness Jesus has borne in my life and through my life, and that just blows my mind. It just amazes me that Jesus not only gives us life, but makes us ambassadors of life and light in the world. It is such a privilege Beloved, if you feel burdened by the need to share the gospel, I just want to encourage you, look to Jesus and meditate upon Jesus. Take joy in Jesus, and at some moment, it's going to occur to you that it's actually a great privilege to take his name on your lips and to stand for him in any setting and to pay any price you have to pay. It's not a burden of something he needs you to do for him. It's an absolute privilege of something he invites to do through you. Finally, Let us rejoice that no matter what transpires, however our Father answers our prayers, and whatever our Father does in light of our witness in the world, let us rejoice that his purposes and plans are irreversible and unstoppable. No force in heaven or on earth can change our Father's mind or stop his hand. He will have his way. 
He will unite all things to himself through Jesus Christ in his time. He will bring all things to their appointed end and nobody will be able to stop him. As Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. The work of recreation is irreversible and it is unstoppable. In a sense, we are still living in the dawn of the first day and all things are new in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, if you have not believed in him, I encourage you now to look to him and believe. As Eric so faithfully said to us earlier, if you look to this Jesus and choose not to believe, you are choosing to reject his authority on the basis of your own authority, and that's not gonna put you in a good place with God. And so I say to you in love, bow your knee before Jesus. And if you have believed in him, then join me in rejoicing in the risen Christ who created all things and who recreated all things for the glory of his name and the, the reverential fear and great joy of all who will believe in him. Let's pray now. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending your only begotten Son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We're grateful that you sustained him through the cross. We're grateful that you sustained him in the grave. We're grateful that you caused him to come out of the grave and to conquer death. We're grateful that you caused him to come back into your presence where he is seated even now at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. We thank you that he reigns forever as the king over all kings and as the high priest over all angels and people and beings. We're thankful that his reign is eternal and irreversible and unstoppable. And we pray now that you would help us to have faith. We pray that the desire of our hearts would be to fall to our faces before you with reverential fear and great joy. And we thank you, our Father, for what you will do through this word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.